Well, good morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it to that Psalm, Psalm 131, or you can flip there on your phone, and uh, we'll walk through this Psalm this morning. I read this Psalm on October 9th of this year. I know the exact date because it was the first day of my vacation. Reading it on that day was coincidental, but it ended up working out really well. And the moment I read the psalm and kind of worked through it in my journal on that day, I knew I wanted to teach on this text on this particular Sunday. And so I'm hopeful that the process I went through that morning in Hocking Hills uh, will be helpful for you as you enter into a new year. So as it served me on my vacation, I hope it serves you and me uh, as we enter into a new year. There's a secret that David alludes to in this text, something he's figured out how to do. Now, David wrote this psalm in the midst of great turmoil, uh, which is most of his life. I mean, David did not have a peaceful life. There was family strife, and there was the business of running the kingdom, and facing giants, and running from kings, and uh, hiding in caves, and all sorts of other things. I mean, a pretty crazy life. So to say that David wrote this psalm in the midst of turmoil, well, it's to say that he wrote the psalm, actually. But in it, he alludes to this skill that he has developed in verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Right there, David takes responsibility, personal responsibility for the calming and the quieting of his soul. In contrast, I think, to how you and I often search for calm and quiet. There are many other paths that we hop to or jump onto to get calm and quiet in our lives. I mean, sometimes we just pray a prayer to God as if he can zap it into existence. Now, I know that God provides the peace that passes all understanding and all of those other um, you know, prayers and verses that talk about the peace that God gives. I'm not saying he doesn't. The question here today is, how does he do it? And so just praying, God, send peace into my life. You've probably prayed that prayer. Sometimes maybe it works, sometimes it doesn't. But here, David isn't even putting the responsibility of calm and quiet and his soul on God. He's not just saying, God, just send it to me like a package in the mail. He's saying, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Well, where else do we look for calm and quiet? Oftentimes in our circumstances, We say, if I can just take care of this, if I just move beyond this, then the calm and the quiet will come. The problem is, as you've learned in life, there's always the next thing. And so you say, if I just get the job or if I just get the promotion, the raise, once the season is over, uh, once the kids' sports season is over, uh, once the kids are out of the house, once it always has something to do with your kids, once... Then calm and quiet will occur. Ah, but there's always a next season. There's always a new thing. Something else always happens. And so calm and quiet doesn't come from God zapping it into existence. Calm and quiet doesn't come from a change in uh, circumstances. Calm and quiet doesn't come from this third place either, and that's people. Well, if my spouse would just blank, right? If my kids would just if my boss would just, 
if my coworkers, if my employees, if fill in the blank, if they would just take care of themselves, then I would have calm and quiet. Oh, the problem with that is there's always another person who hasn't learned to make your life better. And so if calm and quiet doesn't come from God zapping it into existence, and calm and quiet doesn't come from a change in circumstances, and it doesn't come from every other person getting their stuff together, where does it come from? Because David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have calmed and quieted my soul. The Apostle Paul in the book of, I believe it's Philippians, says that he has learned the secret of contentment as if it was a secret that he had to learn. In a similar fashion, I think David is saying, I've learned the secret of calming and quieting my soul. So I want to walk you through what I think David did to calm and quiet his soul, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how everyone else is acting. He said it's not an easy process, though. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. His exact next words are like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Like a baby, no longer dependent upon mom for their sustenance. Now, that process, if you've been around it, is not a calm and quiet process. It's not an easy process. There's tears, there's yelling, there's screaming, there's crying. David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul, but it wasn't simple or easy or quick getting to this point. It was a process. It involves some screaming and some crying and some yelling, some pain. The process that David is explaining here on how he arrived at calm and quiet is similar in the New Testament to the process of how God changes us, how we go through spiritual transformation. It's not easy. It's not quick. It doesn't come without some pain. But on the other end, David says, is a calm and quiet soul. So the process I'm going to walk through this morning, don't get me wrong, it's not quick and it's not easy, and you won't arrive there by the end of the sermon this morning. But you might know how to get there. You might be able to take some of the first steps to learn how to calm and quiet your own soul. But expect along the way that it might be difficult, that it will be difficult, that the growth process here is hard. All spiritual growth is hard. So David says that, and then he ends with this. I'm going verse two, verse three, then back to verse one. Verse three is how he ends. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And so where he ends is all of my hope is going to be in God. That's where we'll end today too. Now let's jump back to verse one. Because it is in verse 1 that David explains his process of how he learned to calm and quiet his soul. And so within this, we're going to see, you can call it three steps or four. It's kind of like a 1A and a 1B. So we'll just call it four uh, to be a little simpler. So there's four steps that David goes through, and he lays it out right in the text of how he learned to calm and quiet his own soul. 
So for me, I did this on the back porch in Hocking Hills. For you, you get to do it in a movie theater a couple days before the year begins. And together, let's, let's learn how we can calm and quiet our souls. He starts with, oh, Lord. David starts with prayer. He starts with taking the, the, the turmoil of his heart, the ups and downs to God in prayer. And now some of us say, well, I do this too. I, I pray when I have a problem. I throw up a prayer when I, have, uh, when I don't know what to do. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a, that's a great thing. But, but David here, his prayer that we're about to break into, and we have to see all of this as a prayer because that's how he starts it. He's going to say some words uh, that if you're going to say these words before God, they better be true, which means that David has done a lot of spiritual work prior to this point. And so he gets into his prayer, oh Lord. And I would encourage you this morning that in the midst of the turmoil of life, in the midst of the quest to calm and quiet, that you too would start in prayer. That you wouldn't immediately turn to all of the other paths or avenues that you've created in life to create calm and peace. Those happen to varying levels. Like for some of us, it's like, I just need to go play around a golf. For others of us, there's more serious things that we have turned to in life or more detrimental things because we've thought these will produce the calm and the quiet that I need. Sometimes those turn into addictions that actually produce the complete opposite of calm and quiet. David here tells us where to start in prayer. Starts in prayer. Oh, Lord. And then he says three things. Three things, but the first one has two parts to it. He says three things to God in prayer. Now imagine saying this to God. That's what David's doing. The first thing he says is this. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not lifted up. So what he's saying to God is, God, you know me. You created me. You formed me. You know everything about me. You can examine my heart. You know whether or not I'm lying. And David says to God, my heart is not lifted up. In other words, I've had to learn humility. David is saying, all pride has been stripped away from me. We want to learn to calm and quiet our souls. The first step is to learn how to not have a heart that is lifted up, a humble heart. Where did David's humility come from? A bunch of reasons, which is probably why he can say this, or a bunch of ways. The first is uh, David's humility came because he knew and could acknowledge his own shortcomings and sin. Psalm 51 is a great example of this. It's David's famous confessional psalm where he confesses what he has done and he lays his heart out before God and he acknowledges his own sinfulness. And here's the benefit of this. Once we acknowledge our own sinfulness, then we can allow God and his incredible grace and mercy to come in. So David's humility came from knowing his own sinfulness, knowing his own shortcoming, allowing God's grace then to pour into his heart Here's the other thing acknowledging our own sinfulness does. It strips away our ability to be self-righteous. Think about the calm and quiet that can produce, just that alone, where you no longer have to be worried and, uh, and comparing yourself to every other person and how good they're doing or, or uh, what are they up to or how have they fallen or you can just forget about it. 
Why? Because you're so aware of your own sin that you're just focused on God's grace for you and not everyone else's failure. So David has humbled himself and it's produced the calm and a quiet. That's the first way, just by simply acknowledging his own sin, therefore his need for God and a lack of self-righteousness to others. Another way David was humbled is just the battles of life. As I referenced earlier, David had a hard life and he was constantly on the run. He was hiding in caves. Uh, He had friendship issues. He had family issues. He had spousal issues. He had kid issues. He had the issue of the king trying to kill him. He had to fight some giants. I mean, crazy life, battles. Your battles, some of them might be similar. And the battles of life can either make us bitter, hard, prideful, or they can humble us. And the battles of life have a, a, a way of, uh, if we allow them to, to humble us and then to look at others who have gone through battle or are going through battle differently. And oftentimes, where there's pride and arrogance, it's somebody who never went through the battle Or it's somebody who never went through the battle, or they did go through the battle, um, but instead of making it humble, it actually actually emboldened their pride. David has learned to humble himself. His heart is not lifted up because every battle has brought him lower, more dependent upon God, which leads into the, the third. David had overwhelming success. I mean, great success, great wealth. Uh, He was a king, a really good king. And there's so much in the scripture that points to all that David did so well. But here's what David knew about his success. It wasn't because of his brilliance. It was because of God's grace. And so David never let the success get to his head. He never let it build himself up instead. He said his heart is not lifted up. He gave God the credit for all of his success. He knew that that it was God's blessing and that he had achieved anything he had achieved. Well, you. And perhaps the reason there's a lack of calm and quiet in your soul is because you look at any amount of success you've had or any amount of striving that you're doing that, uh, that it's all about you or you're the one who accomplished it. And so now you have to go accomplish more because you want to continue to feel uh, that feeling of success. And so now it's a constant striving where David learned, God, you take me where you want me to go. You let me succeed where you want me to succeed. And in that, he could calm and quiet his soul. Now, the other thing that this phrase means, my heart is not lifted up. The the second part of this, the first part is humbling ourselves. The second part, what it means is uh, that David's heart is not propped up on something fake. So you ever at like, you're sitting at a table and there's the, the, the wobbly leg and so what do you do? You grab a piece of cardboard or a piece of paper or something, and you, you prop it up underneath it in order to balance the table so you don't spill your coffee or, or just have to sit with the annoying noise of it going up and down. You prop it up. The thing that you've propped it up under isn't a permanent solution. Uh, it's something that will probably wear out if you leave it there over time, and then you'll just exchange something else in there in order to stabilize the table. It's the same idea of false loves. 
And when I say false loves, I mean things that our heart worships more than Christ, things that our heart worships more than Jesus. And so when our life becomes unstable, what we do is we, we take a love and we slide it underneath to prop us up and to stabilize us. The problem is eventually it wears out. It's not a stabilizing, healing, foundational thing. And so then what we do is we just slide something else in there. And so where if at first it was your success and then you failed, then you throw in something else. If it was your job and then you lost it, then you throw in something else. If it was your relationship, but you broke up, then you throw in someone else or you pursue a new one. And what they become is these, um, these false sense of stability. And they're so destabilizing because they're so fluid. They come in and they come out. They're up and they're down. They're short term. When David says, my heart is not lifted up, he's saying, my heart is not propped up on some false love, not on being king or having the perfect marriage or uh, having all of the power and money that he had. No, his heart wasn't propped up on that. His heart was not lifted up. It was rested on Christ. In order to have a calm and quiet soul, our heart just has to be rested on Christ. Said another way, our deepest love has to be Jesus. Here's where the process gets difficult. This is why David said uh, that it's like a, a child being weaned off of his mother. Like It's not easy to stop and to ask yourself the question, is the reason that my life seems so not calm and not quiet because I'm loving something more than Christ? Because there's a false love that I'm chasing. Because, let me say it another way, maybe more clearly. Because there's something in life that I am pursuing as my greatest passion or the thing that's going to make me other than Christ. And until you have it, because that thing is your savior, until you have it, you feel restless. Right? Popular example of this is if, if marriage becomes the idol then singleness is hell. But once I get it, then I've arrived. Then marriage is heaven, right? All the married people are like, wait, what? Now, in order to learn to calm and quiet our soul, we can't be propped up on a false love. Christ has to be the deepest desire of the heart. So to calm and quiet our souls, we have to humble ourselves and we have to realign our loves. Christ as the foundation. He goes on, David does. He tells us the next thing. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. My eyes are not raised too high. In other words, um, my, my gaze is not on the wrong thing. Starts the heart, then he goes to the eyes. Now, our eyes have a tendency to wander in different ways. Uh, the other day, my sister-in-law uh, was in town, and she was over, and we were sitting at the table, and she was looking for the Chemex in order to make coffee. And she's looking all around the kitchen and opening up cabinets and, and all of that, and, and then she's just standing at the counter, and she's like, where is the Chemex? And then finally, we looked at her, and we said, Kendall, it is literally right in front of you. 
And there it was. I mean, as far as my Bible is from me. She was looking everywhere else that she forgot to look right in front of her. One of the ways that our eyes look too high, as David is saying it, one way is that we look too far out into the future. And so it's 2019 end of it, and you're already thinking about August. You're thinking about September, and your eyes are out on that thing that is coming and that you're not seeing what's right in front of you. Their eyes are always, and here's the deal. You did this last year too. It's a pattern that has developed inside of you where your eyes are always looking so far out, there's no rest right now. Or if our eyes are not looking too far out into the future, sometimes our eyes are always just focused on the past. And so we're always looking back to what happened, uh, to where we were, to what we used to have. And our gaze is focused so far in the back that we can't see what God is doing right here and right now. So some, it's too far into the future. Others, it's too focused in the past. Their eyes are looking there. For others of us, our eyes are just always darting to the right and to the left. And we're always looking back and forth and our head is on such a swivel that we can't calm down. We're so distracted. And every opportunity that comes up or every new person that we meet or uh, every uh, potential option for a new direction in life, we, we look and we stare at that and then something else pops up and we stare at that and we're always going like this. To the one in the future, Jesus told us how to handle it. He said, hey, just worry about today. Tomorrow we'll have enough worry. To one about the past, the apostle Paul wrote, I have forgotten what lays in the past and I press on to the goal in the future. To the one about the right and the left, hey. The apostle Paul, to the one on the right and the left, wrote to the church in Colossae. He said, just fix your gaze on Christ. That's where the action is. In other, in other words, stop looking for all action everywhere else. Stop chasing every little potential thing that, uh, that ends up making you feel so anxious and just fix your gaze on Christ. See, when I do my yoga in the morning and I get to tree pose, that's pretty good, okay? When I get to tree pose, what does the instructor always say? Find something to stare at, right? Because as my eyes move, then my body loses its stability and I fall. If you want a calm and quiet soul, fix your gaze on Christ. Not so far into the future, not always into the past, not going back right and left, but I'm focused on Jesus right here, right now, today, with Christ. Where is he leading? Will he get you to your future? Yes. Has he taken care of your past? What do we know about Jesus and our past? We know that he can work it all out for good. We know that he won't waste it, even where we screwed up. And we know he can redeem it. What do we know about the right and the left when it comes to Christ? We know that he's given you a calling and a mission and a purpose in life. So seek him out, settle on it, and stay focused in it.
I was sitting down writing my goals for 2020. And at the top of it, as I was writing my goals, I wrote down, I'm giving myself permission today that if anything comes up that's not on this sheet to say no. I had to pre-warn myself because my tendency is to do the right and the left. If you want to calm and quiet your soul this year, fix your gaze on Christ right here, right now. The third thing he says, David does, humble ourselves, realign our loves, fix our gaze. This is a verse that has become very important to me. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. First step is there's a little bit of humility involved here because you have to acknowledge that there are certain things that are too marvelous for you. What's what's David saying here? He's saying, I don't allow myself to dwell on or think about things that are outside of my control. How much mental space is occupied in your brain on things that you have no control over? What if it just disappeared? What if you just stopped filling your brain with things you couldn't control? And begin in the habit of saying, nope, that's too marvelous for me. This is, line is in a bunch of different movies, but there's that whole like, um, this is on a need-to-know basis and you don't need to know. That idea? I think that's what David's saying here. He's saying there are certain thoughts that are on a, God's the only one who should be thinking about them and you don't need to think about them. to calming and quieting your soul is whenever your brain, your thought process wants to begin to think about things that you can't control, instead say, I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to trust the one who can control it. There are goals that I had in 2019 that I didn't reach. Some of them just because I was lazy or got distracted. Others of them, I look back now and I realize I had no control over whether or not that goal was going to be achieved. And I thought, how much mental space did I give to things that I have no control over? How much stress and anxiousness did that cause me? And then that to overflow into the rest of my life. Learn the phrase, that's too marvelous for me. And then next time your brain wants to go down the path of thinking through all of the different things about that one thing, say, nope, I don't occupy myself with things that are too great or marvelous for me. There are elements about your health that you can't control. There are elements about your business, your finances, your relational world that you can't control. They're too marvelous for you but he can handle them. Let him think about it. Let him dwell on it. And after that, David says this, I have learned or I have calmed and quieted my soul. Who's the onus on? Us. Here's what's going to be true a year from now. Let me tell you, one year from today, 
There will be things in life that you want to be worried about. There will be things in life that will want to take mental space in your brain that are outside of your control. One year from today, you'll have a tendency to want to be looking ahead to 2022. One year from today, you'll be thinking about or looking back at things that happened in 2020. One year from today, you'll be looking to the right and the left at all of these potential options that you have in life. One year from today, there will be something that will be competing for your love, your deepest affections. All of that will be true one year from today. But here's what could be different. Despite all of that, one year from today, you could have learned how to calm and quiet your soul. So regardless of what happened in the past, what's going on in the future, regardless of what's occupying your mind, your soul will be calm.